Hey, Aaron, when I say stir the pot, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? Probably a witch, Halloween. What are you thinking? Well, our next guest, Greg Thompson, he's the founder of the Special Operations Combatives Program. He's using a different type of steel than your standard kitchen utensil, and he's getting it inside to stir the pot. Shall we head into the briefing room? Let's go. Everyone, welcome to the Vertex Briefing Room. I'm your host, Ron. Joining me today is Aaron from Vertex and the great Greg Thompson, who's the founder of the Special Operations Combatives Program. And Greg, if I understand it correctly, the SOC-P was the first officially designated combatives program for all U.S. Army Special Operations Forces and is now the standard program for fighting in full combat body armor across all services and even some federal agencies. Yes, yes. In March 2010, uh, it became a program of record for all special forces. And then it just kind of expanded since then. Right now, we're you know working with uh, a lot of key units directly under JSOC and have been actually prior to that. That kind of helped the development of the program. But every special operations unit has a SOCP instructor. And then now we're branched out to the uh, Air Force, MARSOC, and other Navy entities as well. So, Greg, if you could tell some of our listeners a little bit about your background, who is Greg Thompson and how did the SOCP come about? Like a lot of guys, I started off in the martial arts, you know, at an early age, around eight or nine, started doing traditional martial arts, ended up playing college football. But while I was doing these sports, you know, I played three sports all the time. I was still doing martial arts training. And then, you know, after I got out of my, with my undergrad, I started graduate school at NC State in industrial design product development. It was a three-year graduate program, pretty aggressive program. But while I was there, I really got into a lot of tie boxing and developing my striking game a little bit. And while I was there too, it was, you know, competing a lot of design competitions. My first year there, I won a national housing competition for actual trash can design. So I was always a product designer slash martial artist from the time I was little. So if you came up to me when when I'm wearing my gi and they're like, Greg, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I would say, I'm going to be an inventor. And I was always tinkering and making stuff. Then I was scrapping and fighting and studying martial arts. So went on to grad school, started doing a lot of tie boxing. Then I watched the first UFC and I was like, man, that's the missing link. Cause I was always integrating wrestling and integrating a lot of stuff together. But I was like that, I've got to do that. We started a little bit of a club. There was a, a guy, uh, Tom Garner. He had a gym in Hillsboro where we would do some of the jujitsu training after we'd work out. And he knew a guy who was a, actually a sheriff in Texas, and his son was Norm Hooten. Norm Hooten, if you know the movie Black Hawk Down, that this is my safety hoot. Well, this is the real Norm Hooten, right? Uh, Norm came, and he was actually a white belt at the time, and he was showing me jujitsu when I was working with him on some striking and a little bit of, of wrestling. And we became good friends and I would float, you know, to Fort Bragg and we would train a little bit outside of his unit. One of his teams went on a trip to Torrance, California. That was where the Gracie Academy was at the time with horses there. And it was back in the olden days. He told me he was going on a trip and he invited me to go and meet his team there. Ended up getting my blue belt, came back and started uh, running a, one of the first Gracie Jiu-Jitsu networks on the East Coast at that time. Once I started doing that, I was still doing my tie boxing because I felt a need. Uh, I really liked the striking, understood the aspects of both and my wrestling. 
as I graduated from college with my master's degree in industrial design, I got a job with the company. I still was doing my job and then running these, this gym. And then I was brought into Norm's unit. When 9-11 hit that January after that, I was in Artesia, New Mexico. I was hired by SEIC to help develop the combative portion and work with the combative portion for the air marshals. So we spent several months developing curriculum for that. We were fighting with handguns and, and knives and it was an adjustment for me because I came at everything more from a martial arts MMA approach and then having to think about the use of force and how it was applied, weapon systems, multiple assailants, fighting in these confined spaces. You know, you can't just shoot and stab everybody and then you have to be able to think tactically on your use of force and, and make good judgment decisions and cultivate inside of teaching techniques, cultivate decision-making process and cultivating that as well as the physical ability to perform the technique. If you don't have a good tactic or manage your stress or make good decisions, no matter how great of a fighter you are or what tools you have, you're a liability. For me, that was the big switch. We developed some TTPs that worked really well in the aircraft, but a lot of that got pushed to the wayside. You know, they wanted a certain number of air marshals in the sky. So around March, April, they handpicked a bunch of us. There was a certain part where they had to go through that. They said, hey, you just have to make sure everybody goes through this training. So they walked in one day and it was like picking kickball. They're like, okay, we'll take this guy and Greg and this guy and everybody else can leave. And I was just sitting there like, okay, I'm glad I got a job. After that started winding down, I almost became an air marshal. I was offered a, a position to take over the training at the Atlanta Hub, and I was going to fly for a year and come back. And then when I went back to Bragg, I was offered a position to help with a student cadre, and then five days a week job for me and another guy. So I, that was my dream job. So I started, you know, right after that, got a place in Fort Bragg, started doing that full time. Me and my guys were martial artists teaching, but we were role players. So it'd be Greg put on this impact suit go over here, we're going to create what's going to happen, and you're going to be the opposing force. By being a role player, you get to learn so much because you see what mistakes people make at all levels. Some of the baddest dudes you know, they'll come in and crochet, then sometimes they make a mistake. You just learn, you know, so much so fast. I was a student the whole time, you know. You know, when I'm a role player back then, you just kept your mouth shut. It's not like I'm going to tell somebody, you should have came through the door like this because, you know, I'm not an operator. I'm not going to try to act like an operator. You said you weren't an operator, but prior to working for SAIC, did you have much experience with firearms and tactics and, and that side of things like edge weapons combat, firearms combat, anything like that? Or was that all learned? Edge weapon techniques and stick and blade I was doing from the martial arts perspective. Firearms I did from more of a flat range understanding of shooting. I really like shooting. When I did work with SAIC, I would go to the range with some of the guys and they'd give us ammunition and they would teach me how to hold the weapon system a little bit better, how to properly do stuff. So I'd have really good training right away. And then even, you know, even being at the unit, you know, they had somebody, Rob Lathan or somebody would come in. And I remember Rob would always invite me out to the range and say, Greg, come out and shoot. And I say, Rob, come out on the mat. And then one day I'm like, I got some free time. I'm going to go out to the range and shoot with Rob. And then when I walked out there, there was a bunch of really good shooting operators out there. And they turned around and they looked at me and I felt like that white belt with one stripe showing up the train with the advanced black belt. You end up learning a lot. For me, the advantage of it was I didn't have a bias. So when I would train with these different units or different squadrons that had a different way of doing something, I just would learn what they would know. And I would show up with an empty bowl and just show me, you know what I mean? So that way, when you'd have to juggle decision-making, you would have a better understanding of it. You didn't carry the baggage of doing it your way. 
that's two in design and developing the martial arts programs as well. People carry their own baggage from whatever system they came with. They try to find ways to fit that square peg in that round hole because that's what they're good at. And then you have to just flush all that and focus on the needs of the end user. Guys will, will start to do or work on something or have a, a mission or a task. And I would say, hey, you know, 15 years ago, you know, John's unit did this something similar. You know, you may want to go ask him who. And I'll say, you know, that guy up in this third floor, you know, whatever, you know, cubicle over here. You mean that old fat guy? I'm like, I'm like that old fat guy's a freaking stone killer. I said, he knows his stuff. I said, you better go talk to him. You know, steering people in the right direction is the way to go. Understanding a finger on the pulse, you know, for understanding different needs of different end users from martial arts programs to combative programs, to developing the products. That's always helped me with developing products like Vertex and a lot of the stuff that they're doing is being able to keep your finger on the pulse. You, you can have a guy that's a freaking stud, like he's very smart and comes up with good stuff. But at some point, he's not up to date on what's going on. And what I'm blessed with is because of the program and the combative field, I know what's going on right now, not just on the military side, but the federal side, you know, all the different units that we're working with there. So what issues are they running into? Then we, from a combative standpoint, we are constantly readjusting what we teach. The SOTP program is, is an ever-evolving program for that. But even when I do custom programs for units where, hey, Greg, we needed to come in for, for three or four days and help us or re reevaluate what they're doing. Because a lot of times these programs become stagnant and they'll have people teaching for them that don't want to evolve. I call them squatters. You know, you have a combative squatter. He protects what he's got and he shoots down everything else that would help to make them better. He doesn't train anymore. And it kind of flushed some of those guys out, you know, on the combative side. Greg, you know, you have your master's in industrial design. I think you have a total of six patents now. And some of my favorite products that you have are, are some of the Benchmade blades that you've come out with over the years, including the, the SOC P Rescue Tool, which I think is something everybody should have as a piece of their kit. Can you tell us a little bit about how do you approach creating and designing new products? I know keeping your finger on the pulse is a key component to that, but you've come out with some of the most innovative designs in our industry over the past 20 years. How do you go about that process? To develop something worthwhile, there has to be a need for it, and you have to identify the need. When I do focus in on, on a product, say for Vertex or even my knife, the dagger, I identified the need for creating space early on. When I came back from working with the air marshals and working with the units, I would tell the guys, hey, whenever you get tackled and end up going to the ground, you know, get to an edge weapon. If you can't immediately, if you're in full kit or you have a lot of people around you, I can't make you good enough with jujitsu in nanoseconds. When gunfights are winning loss in nanoseconds, you know, you've got to win the scramble. If you get stuck there, get to that edge weapon, create that space, right? Prioritize your use of force, create that space, get to a bigger tool. So when I designed the dagger, I actually started with what's called a, a rail guard, where it would come off the front of your rail system of your hand and you'd click it to create space and pull somebody off your gun. And I even made, had a 3D mold model made of it and, and it looked real cool. And I remember running it through that process, you know, because everybody liked the concept. This is a lesson learned. People can like the concept and you go down that road, but then you have to ask the hard questions. If you had it right now, what would you do with it? Here it is. What would you do with it right now? What would you pay for it? And I remember one of the guys looking at me go, well, I like it, but I wouldn't put it on my rifle because, you know, I've got my op 
optics. I got all this other stuff. And then run through the testing and instinctively, you're going to use your hand to create space, your support hand, as opposed to then going back to the long gun. But what's nice about that is when I brought it back to the body, I didn't look at it as a knife. The problem of it is what so many people do. And even with this, when this first came out, people were wanting to shorten the sheath of it. They're wanting to do all these different things, but making it a knife again in the sense of a knife that's going to be used. I'm like, no, this is a tool to create space. This is a knife that you can conceal. It's designed to be concealed. It slides behind a molly. Other pouches cover it up, right? When I need to create space, I can scoop it with either hand, right? I can stick it in, you stir the pot. I can go outside, collar tie up, touch the tonsils, stir the pot. I can plunge it all the way through to the handle, corkscrew it and bring it back out. So now I'm going six and a half inch deep into the subclavian for a quick bleed out. But you still have to target key spots because just because you put a piece of steel in somebody doesn't mean they're going to move the way you want them to move because they're under stress. So as soon as you stick them, you got to get them off and you know use the steel to get to the lead because people don't die fast enough with a knife. Now you can take the windpipe out and a lot of times we'll focus on touching the tonsils because I can hit all these arteries really quick and sever tendons and make this not work, but you're still lingering on me and you don't even know you got stabbed. But if you scoop it out and hit those spots, push them off, handguns out, and you're, you're creating space to get ready for the number two guy. Think about that. And in doing that, it solved a lot of problems for us because we would take the knife and we'd run it through different scenarios. I can get to it with either hand. So now, even when I sh create a space here, I can still transition to the handgun and still hold the handgun and fire with it either in the working hand or the support hand. Change magazines if with it. You know, you, in certain ways, you may have to adjust, but it's not designed for that. I heard people when it first came, like, oh, if you're holding it here and you change a magazine, you stab yourself in the hand. And like, yeah, if, if you're an idiot, you know, you will. But when people would say negative stuff, at first I would be like aggravated. Then I just laugh and go, you know what? They're not in receiving mode and that person doesn't need to know how to use it anyway. And what's also, it helped because it allowed me to get ahead of my competitors so much more because people really didn't understand. And part of the reason why I really wanted to link up with Benchmade too, is they would design the sheath the way I wanted it to design for a price point that I wanted it to be at. So the dagger is pretty much designed to fit here. Now we're carrying it above or below the waistline to get quick deployment, you know, uh, keep it slightly angled at the hip so it's not impeding and digging into you. You know, if you sit down, it's at the crease of your hip and then you can scoop it out with your thumb or your, your pointer finger, depending on what, which way that you're carrying. We have a whole system for that. It's great space. But, you know, what really brought it home to me, even when I was playing with it, is, is being a role player. I remember this female, when we were training some females to do some stuff, she was pulling protection for somebody that was in a meeting. I was in an impact suit. This female, she was like 105 pounds. And I'd been training them for weeks. Every class, we'd end up rolling with them. They'd fight to get their knife or gun and create space. But I want to make her wait before she goes in there and pull support. So when she started into the room, I, sh I shoved her up into the wall and I pinned her handgun down. And then I started to switch hands to go for her support hand because I knew in training she would might scoop for the dagger. But before... I could get my hand over there to it. She scooped the dagger out with her left hand. It was the red trainer. She freaking started hacking me, hit me all in the back, actually in the head. And I had had a helmet on that, that wasn't one of the helmet designs that we have nowadays. And it was hitting me right in the seam right now. And I thought, man, I went to cover up like that. She double post off her pistol came out. She put several rounds in my chest and I was pulling that. I thought I was going to need stitches, right? But it was, I was like, yeah, that's freaking awesome because she was able to pull it out in a time that and break space with me in a way that I know that would work. You see what I mean? It's one thing to train people and give them a false sense of what they can do. They need to know where the pitfalls are. You know, I want them to what I call baby line. It means play fight with it. Don't hurt each other and let them feel what's going on because it's real world. People die. 
when I see martial artists or other combative people pitching a bunch of stuff, it's like, hey, it sounds good, but you got to run it through its paces. Just like a product, you know, you're designing a product, you got to run it through its paces. And there's what we think in this sterile environment. When you throw it out there to the guys who use it, it's going to come back tore up. And then you got to make the changes. By going through the design schools that I went through for my undergrad and, and designers, I would spend months and somebody would, the whole class would rip it apart. They would attack it. So I learned to attack my own stuff. Whatever I have, don't think everything that I've designed, that I haven't thought about every question that somebody else is going to do, because I can easily set my feelings aside and look at something that I like, pretend it's not mine and just rip it apart, make notes of it, and then go back at it and address what needs to be addressed. So in product development, a lot of people don't do that. But sometimes, you know, you want to get feedback from people, but sometimes you don't always get good feedback. Like even the dagger, I had a really respectful operator, you know, when I showed him a prototype because my prototype was cheesy when I showed it to him. It wasn't anything looking like this. It was just a, a circle with a piece of metal running down it that I kind of played with. And he goes, oh, Greg, I don't really get it. You know what I mean? And I thought, man, am I going down the wrong track? You know, but I kept playing with it and I, I got positive feedback when guys would see it. And I would share it with my students inside of the problem that it's solving. And I present it and I can look at the classroom and I can see the look in their eyes like, hey, when is that coming out? Where can I get one? Then, you know, you're on the right track. Greg, you talked a little bit earlier about being able to work with various different units and things of that nature as you're learning your skill set by yourself. How did that involvement with those various different groups, how did that influence the SOC B program as a whole? I mean, does it give you a little bit of a broader reach than what a, than a standard, you know, army guy or a Navy guy, Air Force guy? Do they appreciate that? How did that creation of that program go with, you know, individual units? The development of the program actually came from developing a, a student program for, you know, a, a highly respected unit. A lot of the same things that's in the SOTP program was vetted that way. But what you have to understand, too, is just because a tier one unit is doing it this way doesn't mean it's the best thing for you. It doesn't matter if you can perform that technique better than that operator can, still doesn't mean it's the best technique for you. So you have to adjust that based on that. So a lot of it you know, came down to an assaulter-based, SOT P was primarily an assaulter-based curriculum based on door entries and what's called puck and prisoner handling and dealing with threat. Two of the biggest problems that the SOT P solved was in this the way we develop our scenario-based training for judgment decisions and a standardization of cuffing prisoner handling for all special forces that really work with all units. You know, it's not so much a, a great technique for shooting and stabbing or anything like that. It's the methodology approach from the you know, the door kicking side, so many units and still to this day, they will just practice coming in, shooting paper, knocking it down, and everything's great because you shot this. But the problem of it is the hardest thing is that person you can't shoot, but he's not listening to you. Get down on the ground. Screw you. And then when you go to handle them, they may fight or they may lure you into opposing threats or something else. And then when they start fighting, are you going to drop something to go help your buddy? Drop a spot that you have to pull security on or you're going to die. So when you start integrating that, you learn a few techniques to deal with where you have a handful of things you get really good at and start drilling that in. Because one thing that I learned when I came back from working with the Air Marshal and I had these students, right? These guys were smarter than me, more athletic than me. I could show them one or two things and within a few minutes, they're doing it perfect. And I'm like, freaking, I'm an awesome instructor. Look at these guys are killing it. They memorized a ton of techniques on short memory, right? Short memory crushed it. And everybody 
left saying kumbaya, we're freaking great. No, you're great. And then six months later, one of these guys came back and we're doing some of the sustainment training that we were doing. And he couldn't remember a basic move that he should know. And now I got this guy smarter than me, more athletic than me. And he looks at me with an honest guy. He goes, Greg, I just, I don't remember. So there's a difference between an acclimation to a technique and an exposure. And there's a difference between knowing the technique. You have to define that. I do think in certain systems, it's important to show them a bridge and, and other answers. But the sad thing of it is, is the product you create when you develop a program is based on time and their understanding and each individual's ability to digest the situation based on what, what they have. So when you go to train a unit, a tier one asset, you can expect a lot more in a shorter period of time because of their aptitude. Now, if you go to the big army and you're dealing with a, somebody that may have just barely got in the army, and they don't even want to be in your class. They hate combatives, right? Now you're dealing with a struggle to make that guy, what are you going to motivate that guy to do? And what can he really perform six months later when he least expects it to happen? And that's where you have to integrate a tactical understanding of things as well as a technique. What people need really need to understand too is when we, we define the basics, you know, what, what are your basics of combatives? You know, and people would say, well, it's learn to escape the mount, a good right cross. And well, those are your basics if your end user is developing a fighter that's focused on a one-on-one approach. Now, when you have to fight with guns and knives and cuff people and do this, what you will most likely do becomes your basics, right? So if you ask these units that I'll go and train, I'll say, hey, what are the most common combative situations that your units have been in in the last five years? And they'll scratch your head. Well, came in the door and a guy hit us here. Another guy was there like, okay, We're going to start solving those problems first because those are your basics, right? Now you have your foundational basic movements, but your task-specific basics need to be defined, and that's based on each unit because each unit will engage somebody in a different way. Are you playing clothes and you're coming up interviewing somebody, or you're a state highway patrol and you're pulling people over on the side of the road by yourself, or you're a sheriff showing up to a domestic? All these things are going to be different, so they're POI will be developed a little bit later. Now, there are certain things in our clinch fighting metrics that we created that will fit all those templates. But how much time do I have to train a guy? You know, I did a course for the big army a while back. They had to do some CQB. It was a bomb tech unit. They had a hard time really understanding really why I was working on certain snap downs, dig outs, handling people with a long gun when they were, a lot of them just really wanted to get in there and just beat each other up which I appreciate that. You know, I I run an MMA gym today, but that's not going to help. That's not their basics. So only until we ran through the scenarios did it it really click for them. When I I helped the big army, they were one general vote in 2009 from being totally dismantled, the big army was. And they reached out to a bunch of people and I shared our cuffing methodology, our post frame hook, some of our contact rear. And I said, the real focus for you guys needs to be cuffing prisoner handling and how to deal with people. And then I also recommended crowd control because I, everybody's kicking the doors right now. Somebody has to be the support element outside, even when they are hitting that structure. And then also understanding where the climate change is slowly going to become that you're going to have to deal with people in that less and lethal way. So SOCP is not the end all be all. SOCP is going to bridge the gap between foundational, traditional training and the unique needs of the special operations soldier. What are their needs? So it's changing now. We've always done low-vis stuff, but we've over the last five years, I've integrated concealed carry more into the course. So you show up the first day, one of the first things you're going to end up doing is a double post, clearing with one hand, transitioning to your handgun, engaging that threat, 
look around, elbows in, move to concealment and cover because you're teaching guys how to operate in plain clothes. Why are we doing it with one hand? Well, most of the time in the range, they've always cleared cloth with two hands. Okay, that's great. But more often in combatives, you're going to be tied up with a guy at overhook, underhook, and you're going to foul that clearing of the cloth with that one hand because your support hand's tied up or you're flipping over furniture and opening up a door and having to come out. And the reason I know that wasn't because I dawned on this, because I created the scenarios and watched guys that were way better shots than I am and cleared cloth hundreds of times more than I have start getting all twisted up in their cloth. So we have methodologies for clearing malfunctions with your support hand cloth and everything like that. But it evolved from doing the scenario. And then that's something I'm teaching day one. Although that's not necessarily my lane, I'll explain it to them and say, hey, look, we're going to the combative lane. Clearing cloth with your handgun is going to be something that's going to happen when you're in here. I don't want you having bad habits. So every time you transition or you know, to your handgun, you're going to make sure it's clear. And if it's not clear and it gets wrapped up in your cloth, you got to work through it with one hand, just the way you started. Does that evolution into more plainclothes approach and plainclothes training, is that what led you to develop something like the Sockby Sling with Vertex? I know Ron talked about some of his favorite products that you've developed. I might be a little bit biased. I, I am a little bit biased, but I think the Sockby Sling is one of the best products on the market right now. Can you talk about how kind of the evolution of just the design process and what made you come up with that? Absolutely. It is. I mean, linking it to your phone and having a phone there where you can track other people and being able to afford to do that. There's technology out there where if you have a a sling pack here, if you can fold this down and have your phone right here, you can flip it down the track and see where everybody else is at when you're doing an an assault on something. If you come into a structure and I don't know where everybody's at and you're in plain clothes, it's too easily to engage the wrong person. That, That was part of it. But also, don't share this, but I ran with a fanny pack a lot. I love a fanny pack. And I still, before this was even developed, I would rock a fanny pack, especially on vacation. And my son would be like, dad, what are you doing with that fanny pack? I'm like, son, I'm 50 years old. I don't really care. Somebody don't like the fact that I have a fanny pack on. I've got all my stuff right here. I can dig through it. I can, I can wear it this way if you want to. I can wear it this way. It's whatever. But I also realized that there were some limitations with just the strap. So with this, you can run it with a strap, but it has clips. So if I have another bag, I can clip it to that bag. Now I've got all my stuff right here and a bag that I may be running with. If I'm at the airport and I say, hey, hey, son, daughter, wife, watch my bag. I still may pull this and take my main stuff with me, right? And I can clip it on me or just carry it and have it all right there. Plus there's hidden compartments for your dagger. Also can unzip it here. There's a pocket on the bottom where you can stuff stuff here, but I can reverse that pocket and I can put a full size water bottle in here if I'm hiking or if I acquire a handgun in there, you know, or want to put something in there last minute, I can acquire a tool from somebody else. Because a lot of people don't realize that too, is if you do take a weapon system from somebody, you may not want to leave it there, but you don't want to just start shoving a bunch of stuff in your pants either. So having that ability is nice too. Plus there's another little compartment here at this little loadout. This you can load out with stuff. I could drop this and have escape and evade stuff in here or key thumb drives or medical or whatever. Or I can roll up a piece of lead. Like if I'm going to hit somebody, you know, with a piece of lead, I like to have about eight ounces. But if it's just a few coins in here and you're going to strike somebody with it, you're just going to piss them off. So don't waste your time. But you could load this out with an eight ounce fishing weight and some coins and have it in the back end and probably not your phone in, and I can have it right here and pull it off, and I can cause some damage to somebody with that when it's set up properly. But a lot of times with this here, it's not just for a coin roll, but it's also for escape and evade. So I may ditch everything and just grab this and shove it and Velcro it down another spot 
in your pants or something like that where you have other information or other tools that you may need to have in it as well. So a lot of people don't understand that. But, you know, the front here, you can unvelcro it here and then use the light or even record stuff. So here, this is a clear plastic. So my phone could be in here. I could hit record and now I'm recording everything around me and, and utilizing it that way as well. I'm pretty excited about it. We've got a larger one coming out too. So it's going to be a full-size fanny pack can hold a full-size, you know, Glock in it as well. I've got a lot of products coming out though that's it's gonna really be cool. Pay attention to Vertex. That's coming out, and then several other things are coming as well. And then with Benchmade I, and Shot Show in January here, I've got a, another knife coming out, a, a fixed blade design for the the regular soldier. It's gonna rock some people. A lot of new features in that as well. Well, Greg, I, I warned you at the beginning. We have towards the end of the podcast, we have what's called the the lightning round of questions. And so we have four questions we ask everybody. I'm going to throw in a bonus fifth question to you. And I need you to just answer as quickly as you possibly can with whatever first comes to mind for you. So when you're ready, let me know. And I'm going to start hitting you with some of these lightning questions. Yeah, go, go for it. What are the three pieces of gear that you always want with you? I like my blade. I like my phone. Normally, I like some kind of uh, Leatherman tool or maybe a light with me, you know, a light source. But a lot of times, I'm just using my phone, honestly. I don't like to carry too much stuff on me. But, oh, actually, <laughs> I got this device on my wrist right here that I designed here that's with me. And that's for another time. I always have that with me. It serves a lot of purposes. Now, let's say uh, you were on a desert island. You have a choice of one movie, one album of music or a book, which one of those do you want? And which one of those specifically do you want with you? Obviously, I, I would need a way to watch the movie, right? Yeah, you would have that. Okay. So then I'm, I would have a lot of tools. So if I got a movie, then that means I would have a monitor. I would have a lot of stuff. So I'd probably go with that because it'd give me a lot of accessories that I may not would have. You know what I mean? <laughs> but um, yeah, because I could do a lot with a, a monitor and, and some things creatively to help me get off that island. I guess my mind just went that way. Sorry. You're an industrial designer, <laughs> buddy. You That was the most practical of all the answers we've received, for sure. Do you have a specific movie you would pick? Probably Lion King or something like that. Yeah. Pr yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, there's so many good movies out there. I had to give that some thought. What's the best concert that you've ever been to? The most memorable one I've been to was Joan Jett and the Blackhearts when I was 20 years old. I was a bouncer. It was all alcohol out there. And I was asked to guard the stage. And back in Durham, North Carolina at the time, she was doing it out by this pool area. And the uh, Hells Angels were real bad around there. This biker crawls up on the front of the stage and I'm guarding the steps on one side. And this older guy was an experienced bouncer. Like this is my first, really my first day as a bouncer. Well, he wouldn't go up there. He looked at me and shook his head. And I'm like, all right, screw it. You know, because he didn't want to grab this big biker. So I went up on the stage with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. And I'm walking to this guy and he'd grabbed Joan Jett from behind and he's circling. He's kind of doing this grinding motion like that, waving at his buddies. And they were all screaming. So I walked up to him and he saw me coming. He moves her out of the way. And as soon as he moves her, I arm drag his other arm. So when he pulls her, I just grab his other arm. I'm behind him now. And I walk him off to the edge of the stage. I didn't want to hurt him because I knew that all these guys would come down the whole place who get tore up. So I pushed this guy to the edge and I gave him a little bit of a push off the side of the stage, right? As soon as he hits the ground right there, her manager runs up and punches this biker right in the face. Boom. And then they hit the ground and they're rolling around and I'm going, and I'm 
looking as I'm grabbing him, I'm looking to see where those guys are. Am I going to get a, a freaking boot in the side of the head or something? I reached down and I, I grabbed this guy underneath the neck and, and snapped him up. And I put my foot between the two and I pushed the other guy away. And I actually turned my back so he couldn't hit the biker, you know, when they were rolling around and separated him, screamed at him to, to get back, get back. And instead of taking him out by the, the, the normal exit, there was a highway where her bus came in. And the gate was, so I looked over there and saw that gate. I didn't take him to the cops or in the front. I walked him to that back gate, opened it up. And I said, you need to leave and go this way. Or you're going to get arrested. The cops are headed this way. So he looked at me and he looked over there, which there weren't no cops coming. And he just walked all the way back around, which is probably a mile all the way back around the gate. I want to know what's the hardest you've been hit and who delivered that hit to you? Well, knock on wood, I've never been knocked out that I know. I remember playing football though. I remember getting hit. I was a tailback and I got hit, tackled. And as I was falling, I had a dream. And then when I hit the ground, I woke up. And I'm thinking that was the one time I say I was knocked out. I can remember my boxing coach hit me one time so hard that the eye holes were here, right? And you had your ear holes here, right? He hit me so hard that the ear hole spun all the way around and I was looking through the ear hole. You know what I mean? And even the guys are like, oh, and I remember my whole head spun me all the way around. But I was yeah. still like, OK, you know, because a lot of people don't realize your your headgear really doesn't protect the shot as much, more or less the, the cut. You know what I mean? So you're still going to eat a lot. But um, now that one sticks out. And I don't know if it sticks out because I was hit hard and and my headgear spun around on my head and everybody's like, dang, he tried to take your head off. Well, that's great. Well, Greg, I can't thank you enough for uh, joining Aaron and I today on uh, the Vertex Briefing Room. We look forward to the next time that uh, we get a chance to do this with you, and I look forward to the next time I get a chance to uh, hang out with you again in person. Well, thanks, guys, for having me. I really enjoyed hanging out with you guys, so uh, reach out to me anytime. Absolutely. Where where can people find you, Greg, online? Yeah, if you go to socp.info, I-N-F-O, uh, is the website, and you can, there's some info stuff there. If you like click on that for more information, you know, you can reach out to me. Um, but even Greg at SOCP.info, you'll be able to reach me more, more direct, you know, on an email. And then, I, oh, I've got this new thing that just came out for me. It's kind of new to me. It's called Instagram. Got on it about a year and a half ago. So SOCP underscore solutions. Sometimes I'll post some stuff on there. I try not to give away too much, but I'll have some Vertex stuff on there. And I'm slowly putting stuff out. I don't like throwing a bunch of techniques or too much stuff out to the public, mainly to my guys, but I'm starting to trickle stuff out there a little bit. And if you listen closely, there might be a hint at to uh, what product is coming out next between SOCP and Vertex. So stay tuned. <laughs> Appreciate it, Greg. We'll talk to you soon. Aaron, what was the best part of that episode? I think the most important thing we can all take away from that is you're never too masculine to wear a fanny pack. If Greg Thompson can do it while he's stirring the pot, which now we know isn't necessarily stirring chili, I think we can all take a little fanny pack on vacation with us. I couldn't agree more. I'm personally a big fan of the fanny pack lifestyle. Well, thank you all for joining the Vertex Briefing Room. Make sure you check out the show notes at vertex.com slash podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, and give us a review and experts you would like to hear about on future episodes. So Aaron, you ready to live the fanny pack life with me? <laughs> Let's go, buddy. Are we going down to South Beach? Let's do it.